Well, today I'm going to talk about marriage. And we're going to start out over in Hebrews. So turn there in your Bibles to Hebrews. And it's the 13th chapter over in the 4th verse today. And we're going to pick up there. And we're going to be talking about marriage. And, you know, I believe this. You know, marriage is on, uh, wow, more than ever before, it's under uh, attack. And there's an onslaught against marriage right now. Redefining it. Redefining gender. Redefining what a family is. Redefining uh, who, who and what marriage is. I mean, people are getting married to their dog. One guy got married to his car. You know, it's, it's craziness has overtaken our land. And I really believe this. A lot of people think, well, it's just marriage. Well, no, marriage is very, very profound. Marriage is the very thing that re- really represents God and his church. And, you know, marriage really represents family. Marriage isn't just about me and my wife. Marriage is about creating godly seed for God. Marriage is about a display of the Christ relationship to his church. Marriage is about subduing and taking dominion in this earth for the kingdom of God. It's a very, very powerful thing. And we've got to understand marriage uh, outside the concept of what's in it for me because really marriage is a lot more than just a, something that blesses me as verses. Now, if you get the big things, first, how many of you know, you can take, and I've done this before in front of the congregation, and I, I'm a big picture guy. If you get the big things right, how many of you know the little things just kind of fall in line? You can take a, and I'll never forget one time, one time I saw a teacher do this, and they took a quart jar, and they had some big rocks about, you know, two or three inches in diameter, and then some little bit smaller ones that would have been, you know, an inch or so. You know, they, they divide up gravel in two to three inch and then to one inch. And they had some of that two to three inch. They had some of that one inch. And then they had some sand. And they quantified that in, in such a way that what they did first is they put the big rocks in the jar first. And then the small rocks. And then they poured the sand in and it all fit And that's because they put the big things in first. And all the little things fit around it. All the small sand fit around it. But when they put the sand in first, and it filled up half the jar, they couldn't get all the bigger rocks and the various sizes of gravel into the jar. Anybody ever seen anyone do that? I mean, that's probably something you saw in grade school that your teacher taught you. But let me tell you something. There's a profound message in that. There's really some really amazing parallels to that when it comes to marriage. If you put yourself first, your marriage will be the worst. And if you just put, uh, you know, maybe one person above you, well, I'll put my, my spouse above me. Your marriage will be a little better, but it'll never be what God wanted it to be. But when you put the Lord first and what he has for marriage and its purpose, if you don't know the purpose of a thing, you know, you can take a hammer and think it's a pipe and try to put some tobacco in it and smoke. But how I many you know it's not going to work? And you can, do, you can take a lot of things, and, and if you don't use it for its purpose, you know, I, I'll never forget a missionary donated a Mercedes Benz, had a, had a Mercedes Benz donated a, a, to a, a, a very primitive tribe uh, that, that didn't have any understanding, culture, anything, and and, and I don't know who, who gave it to the missionary, and, and the missionary took it over there, and, and they kept it there. And, and they didn't drive in it. They all slept in it and lived inside of it. I thought, this is really a neat little house. 
because they didn't understand the purpose of it. You know, the chickens are in there with them, you know, in that Mercedes, and they thought, wow, this is really neat. You know, a lot of people don't understand. And same way with marriage. If we don't understand the higher transcendent purposes of marriage, we'll try and try and try to make ourselves happy through maybe selfish means or, or maybe not totally selfish, but I, I'm going to make you happy, so you'll make me happy. <laughs> and, and, but anything that's entered into with us first, how many of you know it's not going to work? But marriage is a very profound and deeper thing than what most people really esteem it to be. But we're all over there in Hebrews 13.4, and we're going to give three things today that really make for a godly and a fulfilling marriage. And it's about getting the big things right. And you know what? When you do these right, you'll get your needs met. Your kids will turn out right. You'll have a happy home. You'll be prosperous. You will meet your spouse's needs as well as getting your own needs met. You will have a joyful home and family. If you will follow and put God and his three major purposes for marriage first, everything else will fit around the big rocks. Can I get an amen? So Hebrews 13, 4, it says this. It says, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but harmongers and adulterers God will judge. So I'm not going to focus on that last part, but it says, let marriage be honored by all in one translation. Another one says, marriage should always be respected by everyone. How many of you know it's almost respected by no one today? I mean, there... There's people that come up and hit on your spouse and right while you're standing there next to them. Anybody ever seen that happen? I mean, there's all kinds of things. That there's just no respect. And you can, you can take your wedding ring off and say, be careful which finger you do this. But, but, see this wedding ring? And that, like, they don't care. And, and there's, there's just a general disrespect. But marriage should be respected by everyone, the Bible says in one translation. And it says, let your marriage be held in honor in all Things. All of human society hinges on the strength of marriages. Social breakdown, family breakdown, marital breakdown is really violating the divine design that God has. Marriage really is the glue that holds everything else together. Marriage holds the husband and wife together so then the children can be trained up right, so they can go out and be good citizens and build good churches. And at the basis of every good community is good churches. They do the volunteer work. All, most, most of the hospitals in America were originally started by church people. Most of the great institutions of education, which are now been very corrupted, many of them, Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Dartmouth and all these great Ivy League schools, they were all started by Christians to be seminaries. A lot of people don't even know that. And all the great institutions, uh, even of art and a lot of things, were started by Christians. It's really a profound thing. And so marriage is at the basis of all that. Because marriage is what holds the churches together. Marriage is really the glue that holds it all together. You know, there's a lot of focus on, on marriage today. You know, one out of every two, uh, you know, uh, one of every two marriages will end in divorce. Is what the statistics tell us. Well, that's not true in our church. Can, can, can I get an amen? We've had like maybe two in 23 years. And so I, I, I'm really, I'm thankful to God that it doesn't have to be that way. One out of every 400 who study the word and pray together do not get divorced. How many of you know it's only one in 400 if you pray and study your Bible together? Only one in 400 get divorced. So 
I'm not down on divorced people because I've got people in my family that have been divorced. And, and I have great sympathy for anyone who's gone through such a terrible and difficult thing. And I pray for people that, that the next time around, if, if, they, if it's in, in such a way that they've remarried, that God will help them to build a, a marriage and, and whatever they've been through, that God can heal that and bring them into a new and better time in their life. Can I get an amen? That, that is so important. And people go through terrible things. They go through very difficult things. That's why I love to just teach what the Word says to help us get our marriages better. How many of you know we can all improve on our marriages, every one of us? Relationally, we grow and we become more mature and we develop. And so today's message is, is really about how uh, to have a godly marriage. And there's really three main components. And again, when we get the big picture right and the purposes of God, it brings blessing on the rest and all the small things. And you know, I'm going to just tell you, in two verses, the book of Genesis is an amazing book. The book of Genesis is really the seedbed of all other doctrine. The book of Genesis is the book of beginnings. And all doctrine can find its roots in the book of Genesis. It's very, very powerful. But if we only had Genesis 127 and 28 to look to about marriage, I you say, what does it have to, what on earth does that have to do with marriage? We would understand so much more than the average person does about marriage. But turn with me to Genesis 127 and 28. And I'm going to base the whole message today off of those two verses. I'm going to pull three major points from those verses. It's so important that we understand that in these verses, we can find out who we are as married couples, what we can do, and what we can have. You know, we, we always, uh, in the past, and it wouldn't be bad to do it again, we'd all start our service by saying, I am everything whom the Bible says that I am. How many of you want to know who you are? You have to look into the Bible to find out who you are. You're, you're a child of God. And before you're saved, the Bible says we're a child of the devil. Well, you know, that sounds real. But that just means that we have his nature of selfishness. That's, that's really what that means. It isn't like some red guy with a pitchfork and horns actually uh, biologically fathered you. No, that's not what that means. What it means is you have a selfish nature. And you're like the spiritual father that, you, that our ancestor, Adam and Eve, followed after. And so we're children, but we're children of God because we're born again, not of a corruptible seed, but an incorruptible seed, even as the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever, it says in Peter. So it tells us who we are, that we're actually the children of God, literally, and that we're actually born again, that we're actually more than conquerors, that we've actually been translated out of the powers of darkness into the power of his dear son, that we're actually uh, the righteous, even though we had, we've led a sinful life, God has imputed unto us righteousness. And we're actually uh, the healed because God has made it available for us to be healed. We're actually the redeemed because he's already redeemed us. Redeemed is a word that we get out of the slave market to be purchased back out of the ownership of someone else who's made you a slave. That's where the word redemption comes from. And so when we understand these things, the Bible tells us all these things about us. And in these verses, it tells us who we are, number one, in the most complete sense. Number two, what we can do. It tells us what we can do as children of God. As a matter of fact, what we're commanded to do. And we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Number three, it tells us not only what we can do, but what we can possess and have and have dominion over in this life. And when we understand that as a couple, see, there's something about Genesis 1, 27 and 28 that is tremendous because it talks about God's blessing. Let's read it together. So God created man in his own image. 
And in the image of God created he him male and female. That tells us who we are. We are the image of God as male and female come together. We reflect the image of God. Now, you've never seen your own face. You've only seen the image. Now, I've said that many times. We do not know what our face actually looks like to actually look at. We can only look in a mirror and see the reflection of our face. We, are, we cannot see. No man has ever seen God. But we as a couple, as a husband and wife, can reflect the image of God. Because it says that right there. God created man in his own image. And in the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And then number two, it says, and God blessed them. Everybody say, and God blessed us. Your marriage is to be a blessing. There is a blessing on your marriage if you'll do it right. Harvard, study, uh, Harvard Business School did a study on 500 of the most executive, most uh, successful executives. Boy, I can't talk today. 500 of the most successful executives. What made them so successful? They looked at their education, and their education was all over the place. Some had graduate school degrees. Some had Ivy League degrees. Some of them didn't have any college education. Some of them went to really bad schools. Some of them just partied and didn't pay any attention and flunked out of college. And it was all over the place. 500 of the most powerful, most successful executive-type figures in America. They thought, well, maybe, you know, gender had something to do with it, but I think it was all men. It was all men. But they, they, they looked at all these things, and they looked at education, and they looked at where they were from. Well, maybe people from the south, or maybe people from the northeast, or maybe people on the coast, maybe people in the Midwest. No, couldn't find any correlation there. They couldn't find any correlation to their ethnicity. You know, maybe Asians are just always the, you know, they always do really well in school. You know, you know, the universities and the Asians just, wow, they hit it out of the park. No, that didn't have anything to do with it. Maybe, maybe it's just you were raised, maybe their parents, were, maybe they came from wealthy families. No, some came from very poor families. You know what they found out in this, this sophisticated Harvard study? They found out that the executives that had good marriages was the most consistent single standout of all the research. Now, I like to bring that all the way back to Genesis 1, and God blessed Everybody say, them. Not one or the other, but a them. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, who? The male and the female, which comprises and makes up the image of God. See, all that God is cannot be reflected by just the male gender. All that God is cannot be reflected by just the female gender. You know, God is called a father, but yet he's likened to as a mother at times. El Shaddai actually means great-breasted one. And the first time I heard that, I thought, what? God? And the maternal and paternal attributes both reside in God. And they resided in Adam before Eve was taken out from Adam as a rib and formed into a woman. Let's keep reading. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply. Now we know who we are. We're the image of God. And now we know what we can do. We can be fruitful and multiply. Fruitful is the first generation. Multiply is the second generation, grandkids. That's literally what that means. 
and replenish the earth and subdue it. Now we can know what we can have. Subdue is something that we can do. We can multiply and we can subdue things. Let me tell you something. Those 500 most powerful, most successful executives, they were subduing some things. You got to subdue some things to become a corporate executive that's at that level. Can I get an amen? You've got to subdue maybe a market share. Maybe you have to subdue a merger. Maybe you have to subdue some type of major business acquisition. Maybe you have to subdue a mismanaged company and bring it back into compliancy. Maybe you have to subdue an out-of-control spending and take that company and bring it back into the black. But you're going to have to subdue some things to be a success in life. Can I get an amen? First thing you're going to have to subdue is yourself and your flesh and your mind. And I tell you, being married helps you to do that. How many of you know, I, I always say this, getting married is just getting us ready to be nice enough to go to heaven. It knocks all the rough edges off of us. You're going to have to learn to be nice to your wife. You're going to have to learn to be nice to your husband. So that when you go to heaven, you're going to have to be learning to be nice all the time. And heaven prepares you. Amen. That was supposed to be funny, even though nobody got it. But we need to learn to be nice. And, and look what it says, that to take dominion. That's what you have. That's your possession, your domain, your dominion. That's your governing over it. It now becomes part of what you are stewarding over. That's what dominion really means. So when we understand these things, it's very powerful. So I'm going to talk about the first principle of marriage and the first purpose of marriage, and it's in the first mention of marriage in Genesis 1, Genesis 27. It says that we are the image of God. And what is an image? Again, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the Bible says. Our face, we don't see, we only look at something that reflects it. We are called to be an imaging mechanism. We are called to be an imager. We're called to be the image of God. He didn't have to make us his image, but he did that for a reason. Marriage is a reflecting element of the very nature and character of God. Think about this. God made Adam because he desired fellowship. How many of you know that God desires to create a people for himself? The Bible says that. It says in, in Revelation 4, I believe it's verse 11, that he created us for his own good pleasure. It was his prerogative, his purpose, his plan, and everything revolves around what he wanted us to be, and he created us in his image. God, be, uh, God made Adam because he desired fellowship. Eve was made for Adam because he desired fellowship, and I don't know if it was an experiment or what, but the animals did not provide proper fellowship for Adam. Can I get an amen? You ever notice that when you're little, you, have, you like animals? I mean, in a wholesome way now, think about this. That everybody likes having pets when they're growing up. And, you know, I, I can remember I had some dogs, and when they, I tell you, they got hit on the road and they got killed, man, we had a funeral at our house. I was, I was devastated. I mean, that dog, he was a beautiful old, uh, you know, English shepherd and collie cross. And he could, all you have to do is open up the gate. And he, if anything, the cattle got out and the hogs got out. See, we, we had a big farm. We had like 300 head of cattle, 700 head of hogs. And we had about 25 Arabian horses that we used to show. And we did all this stuff. And so, you know, we were riding the horses and, and, and herding the cattle and, and stuff like that. And this dog was an amazing dog. He would, uh, you'd open the gate and my dad would drive in there. Uh, with an auger wagon to fill the self-feeders, and if that, if that dog would sit right there in that gate, and he wouldn't let any of the cattle or the hogs get out of the feedlot. 
And if one did, he'd chase them down and chase them until they went back in. He just made life miserable until they went back in that feedlot. He was an amazing dog. And I'll tell you what, my, I can remember when that dog died, his name was Bullet. You can't imagine where that, that was a real original name back in the 50s and 60s, right? And, and uh, you know, Roy Rogers, Bullet, you know, Trigger, all that. And so, it, it was, you know, when he died, I cried, my dad cried, and my grandpa cried at his funeral. And we were all standing there. We buried that dog in our orchard. And I'll never forget that. But you know what? I don't think I could be that involved and have that much emotion over a dog now. Uh, because something happens when you grow up and then you get married. You have a different need. Everybody say a different need for companionship. And I think Adam, that's kind of demonstrated at first. God let him name all the animals. And there was not found one that was uh, sufficient to be his helpmate, it says. And, and so then God took out of Adam, out of his very rib, and he created a woman and brought that woman back to him. So it was, it's a very powerful thing. And so Eve was made for Adam because he desired fellowship. Now, it's kind of interesting that God made Adam to fellowship with, and then in his image, Adam needed to have someone to have fellowship with. And how many of you know we're called the bride of Christ? In the Old Testament, Israel was called God's wife or spouse. And whenever she became unfaithful, at one place even, he said that he was going to give Israel a bill of divorcement. That's how much that parallel exists. Then Adam emanated from God. How many remember there in Genesis 2-7, God spoke and breathed into the dirt and he, and he formed man out of the clay of the earth. So man came from God. His bride came from him, mankind, his bride, his church, his people, Israel. And then we see that Eve emanated from or was taken and came from or came out of Adam because God reached in and took Adam's rib and brought Eve out and then presented Eve back to, to Adam. So we come from God and we're to be joined back in fellowship with God. Eve came from her husband and was joined back to be with her husband to form perfect fellowship. That truly is the image of God. Can I get an amen? It's very profound when we think of that. And then when we go over and just turn there quickly to Ephesians 5 and 22 and 23, Paul talks about this. Paul talks about what a mystery it is and how profound it is and how that uh, the marriage is something that really reflects God. So the first thing is we need to understand that as the image of God, we reflect God and salvation to our children and to lost people. The proper relationship between God and man is reflected in a husband and a wife. It's a very profound thing. It's over there, and we're going to read in Ephesians 5, and I'm going to just pick up there uh, in verse uh, 21. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Well, that might sound kind of scary, might kind of sound bad, until you understand that it's the same way that we're supposed to, as the body of Christ, submit to Jesus, submit to God. It should be a submitting to a very loving response to a very sacrificial love. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ. Everybody say that with me. As the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. 
And that's what the guys always like to quote, that part, and then not read the next part. That'll get you in trouble, guys, every time. And so look what it says. But it says, husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. You ever hung from a cross, guys? Wow. That sounds even tougher. Somebody say amen. As Jesus, or as Christ loved the church, Christ loved the church that he was wounded for our transgression, he was bruised for our iniquities. He was rejected a man, a man of sorrows. We esteemed him not, the Bible says. Everyone turned upon him and they hated him without a cause, it says. It says that they beat him with 39 stripes. Wow. They hung him on a cross. They mocked him. He was categorically rejected by the entire nation of Israel. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Amen. It also says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So he did it with joy, and he did it with forgiveness. Guys, can you walk that type of a love walk? Gals, can you submit to that? See, God doesn't make it easy on either one of us in the marriage relationship. It takes a lot. It takes walking in the spirit and being obedient to the word of God. Can I get an amen, somebody? Now, you shouldn't be afraid to submit to somebody who loves you that much. You shouldn't be afraid of that. Guys, you should be willing to love them if you're going to expect that type of submission. So it's really a powerful covenantial reciprocity that we both have to kind of lay down our lives for each other. Somebody say amen. And see, then, then powerful things can begin to happen. Husband is the headship as Christ. The wife is in that submitted posture as a church, and that has nothing to do with one is more superior than the other. I'll tell you what, a lot of women are a lot smarter than men. And, 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 I, and I will tell you this much, and men, because they have that responsibility, doesn't make them one iota better. It just means that they have a different position in this thing. Somebody say amen. The Bible says that the man, the woman was not created for the man. Uh, excuse me, that the man was not created for the woman, but the woman was created for the man. That's see, there was, Adam was first, and then Eve was taken out, and she was brought back to him to make him complete again. Temporarily separated to come back and make, uh, not to compete, but to complete. And so when we understand that, that there's not anybody smarter, there's not anybody better. It's really not a higher, because the higher you go in God is the lower you become as the servant of the other. How many of you know it says the chiefest of all will be the servant of all? And if the man gets to be the head, too bad for him, because he's going to have to be the greater servant of the two. So don't, don't, don't wish you had the other's role. And see, the devil in our culture today wants to make men into women and women into men. Anybody notice that? Am I the only one that's picked up on that? And then they don't want any gender. They want to make us into, all of us into a bunch of freaks. They want to make us so we don't know who we are, so we don't know what we can do, so we certainly won't know what we can have. And they certainly is a blasphemy of the image of God. See, when you, when you tamper with gender, when you tamper with marriage, you're tampering with the image of God. See, that's the great blasphemy of same-sex marriage. That's the great blasphemy of gender ID transformations 
and all these different things they're doing with gender. That's the black, it's straight from the pit of hell, folks. It isn't somebody that's confused about who they are. This is demonic, this is blasphemous, and this is dark and sick and mentally disturbed from sin. And I don't care if we, that, that's not very politically correct. But you know what? It's about time that somebody starts speaking truth of what the Word of God says. So we need to realize how wicked some of this stuff really is. And it's, and it's wicked mostly because it blasphemes the very image of God. And you know, if you don't know what the image of God, you can, if you don't, see, we can't see him face to face, but boy, if I got a snapshot of somebody, I can find him in a crowd. Can I get an amen? If I can have it, you know, I might not know who John Smith is, but somebody gives me a picture and says, this is, these are five pictures of John Smith. This, this is him with, with or without his beard, with his short or long hair, when he it was a little heavy when he was thin. And so all these things I can get, man, I've got a pretty good image of John Smith. Now, you can turn me in a room full of 100 people. I can probably find John Smith. Can I get an amen? But if somebody completely covers over all those images of John Smith, Somebody draws a, a false you know, depiction of him and, and maybe puts a false beard or changes his eye colors or, or does some weird things and perverts the image of John Smith, I'll never be able to find him. See, if we pervert the image of God enough in our sick, dumbed-down culture, then it'll be so nobody will ever be able to find God. Because you know what? We in our marriages are supposed to be the image of God. We're supposed to be the image of a loving Christ who came down to earth and God put on an earth suit and hung on a cross and took away our sins and loved us so much, he completely gave his life for us. And then, that's not enough. We need to know what the proper response is to a loving Savior like that. And the proper response is, this is where the women gets to portray to their children and to the people at large that don't know Christ, all the lost people that may come into contact with their marriage and uh, maybe observe their relationship with one another. And it's this, that she's fully willing to submit herself to that Christ figure and say, I am here to be a servant and to come alongside you and to be loyal and faithful to you and, and be submitted to your life-laying-down, loving attitude towards me. Come on, somebody, say amen. That is the right response to our loving God, is to submit and give him our life. You see, when we understand that, that our marriage is something far greater. You know, you need to attach, you need to attach your marriage to something that's a lot bigger cause than your feelings. Or your sex life. I, oh, I said it. You need to attach your marriage to a bigger cause. To a more important thing that belongs to a bigger God. And our marriage gets sanctified and it gets blessed if we'll start using it to display the love of Christ's sacrifice and the love of the body of Christ's submission to that loving sacrifice. And we display that to our children so they'll turn out right. Can I get an amen, somebody? Your children need to see a loving dad that lays down his life. Because that's the only way that he'll really ever understand God and how Christ came and died for us. Can I get an amen? 
That's the best teacher he'll ever have is every day seeing dad loving mom and laying down his life for mom, laying down his life for the kids, going to work every day and bringing home the, 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 the breadwinner and, and doing all the work of taking care of the family and loving the family and really seeing Christ in action, Christ laying down his life. So when it comes time for him to get saved and somebody preaches the gospel to him, he'll probably already know it, he'll already get it, he's already seen it, and he already knows it works, and he says, yes, I will. And how will he know that? Because he saw his mom submitted to that, being a helper to that, being a blessing and loving one another and becoming one as a result of that through her submission and through his love. And when that child sees that, when it comes time for him to get saved, he'll say, the Bible says I'm the bride and Christ is the groom. And the groom always does the bride good and always takes care of her. So why wouldn't I want to submit? But if he sees dad beating mom every night or, or mom being rebellious and talking back to dad all the time, he'll never understand the Christ and the church relationship. Somebody say amen. He'll never get it. We need to be displaying that for our children to see, to experience, to live under, to see how it works. And then submitting to Christ and his sacrificial love. Piece of cake. I already get it. I'm already seeing it all around me. It works. See, fam the devil wants to mess up families. The devil wants a woman to say, I'm not going to submit to a man. Uh, the, the devil's going to make a man say, I'm not going to stay here and, and take that off that woman. And, uh, anybody relate to that? Any, anybody at least have those feelings once in a while? We all have. Come on. Let's be honest. That's the devil trying to destroy your household. For your kids' sake and for the lost people who are watching your marriage, how many of you know lost people watch our marriages? Oh, yeah. When a Christian gets divorced, all the worldly people are talking about it. See, they even know that we're, we're being held to a higher standard by God. See, and that, I'm not down on people who have been through divorce. That's a horrible thing. My heart goes out to you 100%. So the first thing that we need to do is we need to make our godly marriage exhibit and model to our family and to the world around us, the God relationship of salvation of a loving Savior that lays down his life as the husband is supposed to, and a loving wife who submits to that love. Somebody say amen. amen. Number two. The second most important thing, it's those big things. We've got to get the big things in the jar first, and all the sand will fit in. The second big thing is in Genesis 128. We just read that we're the image of God in 127. And God blessed them. Everybody say, God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply. Right there. Poof. Be fruitful and multiply. He blesses marriages that are fruitful and multiply. It's not in vogue to have a lot of kids today. You know I, mean? I think America's down to 1.37 now. Well, the Muslims are about up to 8.67. And we wonder who's going to take over the world before long. We're commanded to be fruitful and multiply. It's godly to have a lot of kids. Now, we have four kids. You know, I always say, blessed is the man whose quiver is full. When my quivering became full, when I was full of quivering, I knew that was enough kids. When I'd lay in bed at night like this and couldn't stop shaking, I got to pay for all this. I gotta... When my quivering was full, I, isn't that what that Bible verse means? I knew that God must be telling me I've had enough kids. This four and no more, Lord. 
No, I'm just kidding. You all know what we're talking about, though. God wants us to be fruitful and to multiply. He wants our kids to multiply. Fruitful is the first generation, you having kids. Multiplication begins when your kids start having kids. How many of you know that's multiplication? Be fruitful and multiply. That's a powerful thing. I believe this, that when we do that, uh, we, we are fulfilling that we were created for God's good plan. God created us to have a family for himself. It talks about how Paul would bow his knee to the father of the family of God in heaven and in earth. God's got family both in heaven and on earth. But turn with me to Malachi 2.15. We're going to see where the Bible it says that God desires godly seed. Everybody say godly seed. Seed is children. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Look what it says there. We're over there in Malachi 2 and 15, and it says this. And did not he make one, yet had he the residue of the Spirit, and wherefore one, that he might seek a godly seed. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none of you deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Wow. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth putting away. And that's, that's a reference to the divorce. He hates it because it's so hurtful. So hurtful to the people. So hurtful to the children. Nobody wants it. Nobody likes it. it, it it's, it's never a good thing. You were united to your wife by the Lord in God's wise plan when you married and the two of you became one person in his sight. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. That's, a, that's the living Bible says it like that. Is that one a little bit more easy to understand? Let me say it again. The two of you became one person in his sight. And what does he want? He wants godly children from your union. Because God's in this thing forever, not just the next 70 years. God's going to create... A new world, it says that this world will be destroyed by fire, and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth will come down from heaven in Revelation 21. And then it says, we will all have new glorified bodies, and we will live for him forever and forever. Everybody say, and forever. That's a long time. And it says that he has chosen us to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that we should show forth the praise of him. He has chosen for us to become his people forever, to fellowship with us forever and forever. And we will be rewarded. We will be put some over 10 cities and some over five cities. And we will rule and reign with him forever and ever, it says in several places in the Bible. This isn't just end up when you, when you drop dead and you are put in the ground. No, that's just the beginning. This was all just an entrance exam. And it's forever and forever. And he wants as many children as possible. And you know how he has chosen to obtain them? Through you and me. We get to be partners in procreation. We get to be the image of God in that we get to have a part in creating human beings. We get to partner in creating human beings for eternity for our God. Now, that's a little different twist than the selfie, touchy-feely idea of marriage that we have in our little uh, pathetic, uh, shallow pop culture of today. Somebody say amen. amen. 
It's a little more profound. It's a little more connected with a bigger cause than my loins. It's very powerful when you understand this, what God has created us for. It's not just to have a good time with our spouse. Yes, if we get the big things right and the first things first, you will have a great time with your spouse. When you get the big rocks in first, there'll be plenty of room for the sand, somebody. Amen. You see, one of the true traits of a righteous man is over there in Psalms 112. Turn with me, and it talks about God wants our seed to be mighty in the earth. I believe that that's in qualitative terms and in quantitative terms. Psalms 112. <clears throat> and we'll begin there in verse, well, we'll begin in verse 1. It says, Praise ye the Lord. Blessed is the man that feareth the Lord, and delighteth greatly in his commandments. He delights in the commandments of God. That means he, he does the commandments of God. That means he's, obe he's obedient to God. How many of you want to be obedient to God? How many of you know Adam and Eve were obedient to God? How many of you know their kids got all screwed up and one murdered the other one? How many of you know they got kicked out of paradise and into the you know, weed-growing, miserable, sweating, child-bearing in pain and, and resenting your husband's authority type of a cursed condition? Man, they screwed it up royally and for everybody who came after them. And the whole human race has been a messed up family ever since, a dysfunctional family ever since. But I believe this. Here's the man who's obedient. He feareth the Lord. He delights greatly in his commandments, Psalms 112.1. His seed shall be mighty upon the earth. The generation of the upright shall be blessed. What did God do? He blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply. Connect those two verses together, and what you have is a God who wants to bless you as you have a lot of kids, as many kids as you can handle, and, and that's going to vary for every person. Some people, maybe they can only handle two. Some can handle four, and some might be able to handle six or eight, and that, I tell you what, my hat's off to those folks. You're awesome if you can do that. And some people look down if you walk into an airport, and you got six little kids walking behind you. Everybody looks at you like, they're going to some fancy restaurant in Los Angeles, and they'll let the dogs in and tell the kids to go, you know, take the kids out. And, and I'll tell you what, we got our priorities so screwed up. And it says that, you know, basically that your seed could be mighty in the earth. Mighty, I believe, is he wants us to have a lot. He wants them to be subduers and takers of dominion. Everybody say, subduers and takers of dominion. I don't care if it's in business. I don't care if it's in law school. I don't care if it's going to med school. I don't, but he wants your kids to be the movers and the shakers. Not somebody, some heathen's kids. He wants the righteous, their seed, to be mighty in the earth because there's a job to do. To bring people to Christ. And to be an excellent spirit that people look up to. God desires godly children, more family to fellowship with in eternity. He wants us to have blessing and offspring so we can relate to his satisfaction of having spiritual offspring. You will learn a lot of things through having children. Children will take the selfishness out of you just like a spouse will. Somebody say amen. 
Because you've got to share your life all of a sudden. And wow, is that a, is that a major paradigm change for a 20-year-old guy? Ultimately, our children are a gift from God. It says in Psalms 127.3 that children are a blessing of the Lord. It says, except the Lord build the house, they that labor do so in vain. And children are a blessing of the Lord. The, fruit, the reward of the fruit of, our womb, of, uh, of the womb and that they are those who will stand in the gate. We'll talk more about that. Let's, uh, we'll just go there. Let's just read that. That is a great, you've got to memorize This is awesome. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain. Psalms 127. Labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman keep it in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and late to eat the bread of sorrows, <clears throat> for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Loach, what does that have to do with children? Give his beloved sleep. Man, I, I, I quoted that all the time, and sometimes I couldn't get to sleep with the kids crying and screaming and wanting the, to be fed. But I'll tell you what, in the long term, he'll give you sleep. Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord, of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is his reward. You know, that goes both ways. You live godly. Kids can be a nice reward. Or they can almost be a punishment if you don't live godly. Somebody say amen. If we're not. Now, that, now, if your kid's maybe not behaving, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the really wicked people who absolutely will have nothing to do with God. A lot of times their children turn out pretty bad. Sometimes they get turned around, but... Tell you what, it pays to serve the Lord. As arrows are in the hand of the mighty man, so are children of the youth. Arrows is when you shoot them way out beyond your life. And you might have gotten the Lord's will done to a degree, but then they carry on and they continue doing the Lord's will and they bring things to pass that are multi-generational assignments. You see, God, it says in Genesis 18, 19, that God knew he could trust Abraham to command his children after him. So because of that, he could bring the promise to pass. That's generational continuance of the promise. And see, because he trained those children so well, he got it so deep into them, it didn't just get into them, it got into their, his kids and his kids' kids. If you'll train your kids right, your Christianity will go into them and into your kids' kids. Just like Paul said, even that which is in thy grandmother Lois and in thy mother Eunice, I see the same faith in you, Timothy. It's the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchal line. And we can see that because he, Abraham, would so train his kids and order them to follow God, that it wasn't just Abraham's children grandchildren and children. It was many generations that came that the lineage, the righteous lineage of Abraham continued many, 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 many generations all the way until it got down to Jesus Christ himself. And that lineage had to be preserved as a holy and righteous line so Jesus could come through that lineage, not a wicked lineage that was separated from God. Can I get an amen? You know, you'll know your success if your kids' kids serve God. You'll know you properly trained your kids if it isn't just you or the next generation. But what about the third and fourth generation? That's when you know you've done something right. Somebody say amen. And you know, you can't do that with a lost person as a spouse. You can't do that when you're unevenly yoked. Your kids will be the ones that suffer. Something to think about. You see, you've got to have somebody who's in agreement. You've got to have somebody who understands some of these things. You've got to have somebody who's going to walk with you through these things and live a godly life with you. Somebody say amen. And then we give our children back as a gift unto the Lord. There's a lot of worldly ideas about children that are very perverted. 
my children, you know, my control, you know, attitudes toward children indicate spiritual climates many times. You know, even some Christians train up their children for selfish purposes. You know, some guys have trophy wives, some people want trophy kids. It's all about ego. You know, like the pretty wife that you don't ever want to have a deep conversation with. You know, that's the trophy wife. That's the, that's the stupid term that has arisen in our culture. Some people just want trophy kids, so I can compare my kids to your kids. I don't want trophy kids. I want kids that serve God with all their mind, with all their heart, with all their strength. They serve God. See, get first things first, and your kids will turn out just great. Your kids will turn out just great. Get the first things first, and you'll see things happen that will amaze you, and your children and your seed will be mighty in the earth. Somebody say amen. See, in Jeremiah's days, they sacrificed the children to Molech. Today, we sacrifice our children to egotism, to career. We sacrifice our children to going and playing sports every Sunday instead of being in church and, and, and not getting that model right. We sacrifice our children on all kinds of little idols, and it may not be called Molech. It may be called keeping up with the Joneses, but we sacrifice our kids to all kinds of little idols today in our culture, and we're no different than they were in ancient Israel. See, I believe this, that God has a plan for your children before you were ever born. And it's your responsibility to steward them into that divine call and purpose and plans and pursuits that God has for your kids. And it's your responsibility to find it out and begin to inculcate them in that at a very early age. Somebody say amen. Last one is to have divine partnership. Let's go back to that. I told you I was going to take it all from Genesis 1, 27 and 28. And God blessed them and said unto them, be fruitful and multiply. When you, when you look at marriage as about having godly kids, all kinds of things start going right. All of a sudden, everything starts getting better in your relationship. I, I don't know how to explain it, but I'm going to tell you it's the truth. Be fruitful and multiply, replenish, subdue and have dominion. That's what those 500 executives were suddenly recognized how they could subdue and have dominion. They subdued corporations. They had dominion over market shares. They were, they were mighty men in the financial arenas. And it was attributed that they all had good marriages. See, that's the blessing that Genesis 1.20 is talking about. God made us to function as a leader and a helper. And you are there to complete and not to compete. That is an utter perversion of marriage. And let me tell you something, it takes a very confident person in both, in both of those, it takes a confident man to lead his family. You got to be confident that you hear from God. And it takes a confident woman that doesn't have a self-esteem problem to be able to submit to a man. Somebody say amen. It's a sign of maturity and high self-esteem to be able to submit to someone. It's, a, it's a really a sign of strength to be able to submit have that much control over yourself and to be that obedient to God. I know that that probably isn't going to hit the top 10 sellers list, that message, in America. Oh, I, I guarantee you, it will not make the top 10 you know, DVD sales in, in the Christian you know, marketplace. But I really could care less about things like that because I know what the Word of God says. Somebody say amen. So we subdue and we take dominion. Subdue means to conquer, to bring into subjection. 
To have dominion is to rule and to govern over a particular realm. How many know it's easier uh, to conquer and rule over life's challenges as a couple than as a single? Genesis 2.18 says it's not good that you're alone. It's not good for a man to be alone. He that findeth a good wife, not she who findeth a good husband, by the way. He that findeth a good wife findeth a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. How many of you want favor from the Lord? When you find a godly wife, you'll have favor from the Lord because God blesses godly unions. As you know, the, the scriptures come out of Proverbs. Ecclesiastes 4.8, it says two are better than one because there's no one to help you out if you don't have a spouse and children. No one to give you acknowledgments in, in your accomplishments. Two can accomplish more than one, it says, twice as much. It's an exponential. If one can put 1,000, two can put 10,000 to flight, the Bible says. They watch out for each other. When the other's down, the other one can lift them up. And it even says that they, they produce heat in the wintertime. You go to bed and you stay cold. But how many of you can feel the heat coming off your spouse when you're laying there in that cold bed in, in cold Iowa winters? For some reason, there's this weird reciprocity and synergy that takes place when there's two, you know, producing heat and your body's just, you know, it's just powerful. Jesus sent the disciples out two by two. Wherever two or more are gathered together agreeing, there am I in the midst of thee. For some reason, God puts a premium on doing things as doubles, not lone rangers. Somebody say amen. Understanding the partnership roles of the husband and wife. You know, it says uh, that God created a helpmate for Adam. 1 Corinthians eleven eight nine. the woman is created for the man. That's not a condescending, secondary, uh, lesser, or reduced role at all. It's just an understanding of purpose that drives things. And it says the man is to be subduing. You know, in Genesis, we can see that in Genesis 1.28 that subduing and taking dominion of something. In Genesis 2.18, before the woman came and was involved in helping him do it. You know, one thing you got to understand when you, when you look at your Bible, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are, are not even in the same universe as far as chronologically. Genesis 1 is this big overview of God telling you what he's going to tell you before he tells you. God's giving you the big picture in Genesis 1. Then he breaks it down and incrementalizes it and goes step by step in Genesis 2. In case you didn't know that, it really helps when you go to interpret. Because otherwise, chronologically, you'll be upside down and confused as can be. So you've got to understand that he talks about, you know, that he created him and her. But he doesn't create him and he doesn't create her until the whole next chapter. Genesis 2. But here's something, guys. That Adam was given the garden to be over. He was naming all the animals. He was given the word from on high, the covenantal word to not eat of the tree before Eve was created. Before Eve was ever created, he'd already been put over the garden to guard it, to protect it, to keep it. He'd already been given the great command from God to don't eat of that tree. No matter what, don't eat of that tree. He'd already been given an ability to name all the animals. And then, God, you know what? I'll tell you something. Guys, you need to be taking dominion over something before you ever meet a wife. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't let my daughters marry a guy if he didn't have a job and knew where he was going. He better already have his garden. He better already have his commission. He better already know why he's in that garden, what he's supposed to do with it, and what's going to harm him and what's not going to harm him, and what to do and not to do with it, and to be able to name all... He, he already better be doing something, or I don't want my daughter to marry him. 
Because how is she going to follow somebody who doesn't know where he's going? How is she going to help him subdue and take dominion if he's not subduing and taking dominion of anything? It's a marriage going nowhere. Guys, we're called to subdue things. We're called to conquer things and take dominion, have a dominion. I, I believe this, and that's an attractive thing to a woman, and that's a fulfilling thing to a man. Can I get an amen? Amen. That might be just doing a good job and you're a great job at the job and getting advancement and being able to buy a house. I'll tell you what, that's a pretty good, right there is a pretty good subduing and taking dominion if you just get those two things done. Can I get an amen? Have a good job and provide a place for your family and, and provide something. If you will do that, God will get on board with that and God will do great things through your life. But I'll tell you what, Adam was not leading. Many men never take their place because they've not been taught in our culture. Matter of fact, if you try to take your place as leader in our culture, you'll get smacked down for it. And if you try to submit to your husband, you'll be called an idiot, stupid, and, and what's wrong with you? But if you, if you have a rebellious attitude, you'll be celebrated in our culture today. If you act like a woman, guys, you'll be celebrated in our culture today. There is a twisted culture that pounds into the ground anything that's biblical and celebrates everything that's unbiblical. Has anybody noticed that in the culture? It is terrible. It is absolutely terrible. And Adam was not leading. See, he was told to have dominion. Why did Satan have a conversation with his wife and have enough of a conversation to convince his wife to disobey her husband because she had to get that information from her husband because God told Adam about it before she was ever in existence. It came through him. And then why on earth did, was the devil allowed to have a conversation with his wife and then his wife was allowed to change his mind and disobey God and eat of the tree? He obviously somewhere along the way lost his understanding to lead. The Lord commanded the man to not eat of the tree. And the man somehow failed. And see, everything in our culture is trying to get us to fail at leading our wives. I'm just telling you, man. Everything about our culture does not want you to lead your wife. Let me say it one more time. Everything in our culture does not want the man to lead his wife. And everything in the culture does not want the wife to follow and support the man in the culture. Because the culture is corrupt. The culture is fallen. And I believe this, that God wants us to have exemplary marriages. Because we've hooked ourselves to three major things that changes everything about the way we do marriage. And those three things are, are clearly to be the image of God before our children and before lost people. Number two, to be fruitful and multiplying and raising godly seed. And training them up. And the way that you train them to be godly is being Christ-like in the love of the dad in a sacrificial love. And as the submitting bride to, to Christ, the wife needs to be a support to that husband. And the children, you will begin to raise godly seed. And then with your godly seed, they help you take dominion. I'm going to end with this verse because we're over in Psalms 127. Turn with me to Psalms 127 quickly. I'm going to end with this verse. 
It says, Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord. Verse 3, Psalms 127, verse 3. Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of thy youth. Happy is the man who's, who hath, that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. You know what the margin of my Bible says? They shall subdue or destroy your enemies in the gate. When, you've trained, when you have become the image of God, you and your wife, and you've raised godly children that now are in the image of you because you're the image of God, and they're godly children, and you've produced godly seed. And when you can't be the main leader anymore, the Bible says your children will subdue your enemies. You know, I believe this. I pray for my kids every day. And I hope someday they'll start praying for me every day. I know this. I, I've taken care of my kids, and whenever they ever needed money or they need anything, we always take care of them every time. And I pray that someday if I ever need money, if I ever need my kids' help, they aren't going to abandon me in a nursing home. But they're going to take care of me. I believe that if I, if, you know, I, I may be in ministry and whatever my call is, I believe my kids are going to take over and finish the call and continue on with the same call that I had in some form. In fact, it doesn't have to be in this church. It can be someplace else. I believe that what I start, I believe they're going to finish. I believe that whatever enemies I can't take on, they'll take on for me. I believe that my kids are going to be for me and not against me. I believe that my kids are going to subdue my enemies in the gate. My enemies may be old age one day. My enemies may be not enough money one day. My enemies may be something that I didn't fully accomplish for God like I should have one day. I believe my kids are going to pick up that cause. They're going to defeat those enemies, and they're going to run past the finish line. They're going to tag team and jump in the ring and win the fight. They're going to do whatever uh, on the hand off the baton and run the final leg of the race. They're going to take it like an arrow shot out way beyond my life into the next generation. Because I've raised them right. And how did I raise them right? Because... I acted as the image of God in front of them. And they're going to go on, and they're going to subdue, and they're going to take dominions. My kids already make more money than I make. And they're just getting started. And I'm, I'm a proud dad. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say it, happy to see it. Somebody say amen. They already are probably, in many ways, know more than I do and can do things I can't begin to do. I know they're way better on the computer than I am. And they, know how to, they can do things with an iPhone that I can't even dream of. And I'm perfectly happy with that. The things I couldn't subdue, I'm going to let them do it. <laughs> the dominions I couldn't take, I'm going to let them take. And send them on their way. Let's all stand up. We're out of time.